0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan Spina. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And it is my joy to be leading us in, in God's word as we continue in our worship of him this morning. Uh, Before I do, uh, before we're going to look at David's life here in a brief moment, before I get there, I just one small piece of housekeeping, if you will, uh, and that is I wanted to say thank you to all of you. Uh, See, I too am going out on sabbatical, um, and I made the joke in first service, like, don't worry, every time a pastor comes up here, they're not saying, hey, I'm going out on sabbatical. That's not the case. Just happens that George and I started at the same time, uh, and that dog took the summer months. So I appeal to the elders, and I'm like, hey. I enjoy summer too. Uh, And they said, it's okay. So George and I have a little bit of an overlap. I'm gonna leave on July 16th. That's my last day here. I'll be worshiping with you all. And then uh, we'll just be out on sabbatical after that. Just doing some soul care. It is a gift from you all. So that's why I wanted to take a moment now because obviously I won't have the chance to say thank you to all of you after this. Uh, So thank you. This really is a very generous gift that you give us pastors uh, and for, for my wife and I in particular, it's been a, a very um, unplanned 2023, uh, so, but the Lord knew because he's sovereign over all and nothing's lost on him, uh, so this is actually a really wonderful time uh, for us and our family. So thank you. Thank you for that. So in a couple of weeks, um, I'll be heading out. Uh, but today, we're going to continue in our series that we've been in all summer called uh, A People of Faith, looking at the godly character of various men and women from our history, uh, these are men and women that we see in the Bible, and today we're going to look at the life of David, as I already alluded to. Uh, and while we're not going to actually be in First Samuel, it's in First Samuel that we find our controlling verse, or kind of like our guiding principle, if you will, for our time here today. It's a, it's a way in which David is described. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, we see these words. It says, "'But now your kingdom shall not continue.'" And then, uh, then we hear this. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the Lord referring to King Saul at that time. He wasn't, he wasn't doing his kingly duties. So God says, I'm, I'm looking for a new king. And he describes David this way specifically. He says, a man after his own heart. And later in chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, And referring to David, we actually hear the Lord say to Samuel, he's talking to Samuel about David, and he says, for the Lord sees not as man sees, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What I want to focus on is how David is described by the Lord as a man after God's own heart. This is the Lord, this is God saying, I see David, and he is a man after my own heart. Looking at David, we can ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a man after God's heart? What are some of the characteristics of a man after God's own heart? How can, how can we look at David and then in turn kind of inform how we live before the Lord? What are, what are things that we see there? And to help us, we're going to spend our time in Psalm 25. That's actually where we're going to be for, for the remainder of our time here today. And in Psalm 25, we see the character of David, and then correspondingly, we see a a bit of the character of God, kind of David's character in parallel with God's character, which leads to strength and faith. And in this Psalm, we see seven attributes of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And for the rest of our time, I'm going to say man, I'm going to refer to David. David wrote this Psalm, uh, so I'm going to refer to man. However, these, these attributes, these are godly attributes. These are godly character traits. They can be applied to men and women. Uh, but for ease of our time, instead of saying man and woman, man or woman, every, every time, I'm just going to say man. I'm going to stick with it. And we're going to see seven character traits. Um, I figured we all have time. It's a holiday weekend. We don't have any plans. So let's have a seven-point sermon. I thought you guys would appreciate that. We'll try to, I'll try to hustle us through. I did go just maybe two minutes long, but I'll, I'll fi- I'm going to fix it up here. You guys won't even notice. We'll make up the time in the air. What does that even mean? All right, <clears throat> to set up our time today, though, I do need to do a quick overview of the book of Psalms because the, the text that we found is in Psalms, and, and the book of Psalms, it's just a, it's a little bit different. How we approach Psalms is different how we approach other scriptures. Uh, when We read narrative or historical accounts. Those are, you know, it, it's all God's word, and it's all true, however, Psalms are, are just a little bit different. So what is a psalm? It's essentially, a psalm, that, or Psalms, they're scripture written poetic form that are meant to be sung. Psalms are actually songs. They're, they're, they're poems. They're, they're meant to be sung. It's music. And this form, this style kind of helps draw out truth in very colorful ways. So it uses very emotive, beautiful, colorful language. And it touches on the full range of human experience and emotions. And these aren't just meant to be f- like read flatly, like if you will. They're meant to be entered into in a sense of, of wonder and awe. Like as an example, I, I could just say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And, and that's true. There's something still, there's truth in that sentence. However, when we sing it, as we just did, as we come to those words, as we listen to the music behind those words, as we hear like, the author's intention and how they, they arranged it, there's words that kind of stand out to us, the words of hope and, and Jesus' blood, trust, they, they, they jump out at us. There's something beautiful in entering into words and seeing them and just seeing the, the, kind of the, the intentionality behind it. And, and that's similar to how we approach Psalms. When we come to the book of Psalms, we can't just read them. We have to enter into them, allow ourselves to enter in kind of an emotional experience, ponder what's being said, and kind of grow in our sense of wonder and awe. And because they're poetic in nature, psalms actually use a variety of styles and techniques. There's different like, kind of uh, tools that, that are used in poetry, and we see that throughout the book of Psalms. So for instance, this psalm, Psalm 25, it's the first psalm that's an acrostic, with each verse beginning with the letter in successive order following the alphabet. So we have an alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Um, think you guys know that. Uh, So imagine if I wrote a poem uh, and the first letter of the first word and the first line was A. So that first word starts with A, whatever, the first line. Second line, first letter, first word, B. Third line, first letter, right, C, and so on. That's called an acrostic. That's a style, that's a tool, literary tool, or a writing tool that the author uses. And and in in the Hebrew alphabet, there's guidelines around it. I'm sorry, there's a Hebrew alphabet as well. And, And this author is using that as a set of guidelines, if you will. He's using this as like a set of boundaries to draw out the truth. There's something beautiful in how the author penned these verses. And Psalms often paint word pictures and use very hyperbolic language to help us to enter into the truths that the authors want us to convey. And we never do that, right? We never talk hyperbole. That's a, that's a hyperbole, right? That's an exaggerated language. Of course we do. So some examples in Psalm 50, it says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Wow. That language is profound. The perfection of beauty? How do you even begin to describe that? It's like trying to, trying to describe the, the color of smell. I mean, it's just profound. And it refers to God, who is called the perfection of beauty. Or Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We, we can't imagine, we can't fathom how high the heavens are above the earth. We can't fathom how far the east is from the west. These are unmeasurable terms. And they're being used to draw out the truth about God's love and forgiveness. Or Psalm 42.1, our, our last example here of this kind of like style of writing. Psalm 42.1, as a deer pants, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, wow. oh God. I mean, you can't just read that. You can't just be like, oh yeah, right. I mean, enter into, think about that. From a Picture a deer near hydration, looking for water, panting for water. Maybe it's tongues hanging out. I don't know. That's so what my dog does when we're playing with our dog. He runs around and when she just like, just overdoes it, she's like, like her tongue's hanging out. I'm like, Gladi, go get some water. That's what this author is saying. It's like, my soul is craving you. Oh God, it's nearly empty. Come fill it up. And we're gonna see the same idea in our text right in the first verse. And we're gonna get to that in a brief moment. The last thing I wanna point out is that there's different categories or different types of Psalms And while I won't get into all of them, I do want to point out that this psalm is a lament. And laments are songs of disorientation sung by those in distress. So when we come to laments, we have to keep that in mind as we read the text. There's something going on in David's life here in Psalm 25 that's causing trouble. He mentions enemies, he mentions sins, and out of this state, he pens these words to God using very emotive language. He's being raw. He's, he's exposed. We're seeing who David really is as he's pushed into lamenting. And with that in mind, let me read our text for us today. And like I said, we're going to see seven different character traits that define a man or a woman after God's own heart. One last thing there is that I just, I'm hoping that you're gonna interact with this, like that there's something in these character traits that's gonna hit you. But what I don't want you to hear is that this is a list that you just muscle your way through. This, I mean, there's, there's some effort. We're gonna talk about humbleness, for example. There's gonna be an effort on your part to lower yourself, absolutely. But you need the Holy Spirit to transform you. These are godly character traits. They only stick when the Holy Spirit's at work inside of us. So let me pray for us and then I'm gonna take us into Psalm 25 and we'll go through these seven character traits. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that you're the perfection of beauty and that from that character trait, from that description of who you are, you've given us your word, the Bible, and it's just beautiful, artistic, and just very different ways of communicating with us. And we come now to Psalm 25, help us. I ask that you would soften our hearts to hear the minor key of lament in your word, both today and at other times when we come into, into texts like today. Help us to enter into this text. Help us to hear you through it. I wanna ask that you would remove the distractions, remove the, the chaos, the noise, whatever might be stirring inside of us, and instead, may you just shine forth. Whatever's not of you coming from me, may you just shut down and may your word just come forth. May you penetrate people's hearts today. For your glory and your glory alone, we ask these things, amen. Now, let me read Psalm 25 for us. We'll have the words for you up on the screen. I'll read through that. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David is saying, Father in heaven, only to you do I give my soul. I dedicate my very life to you. My life is yours. In these first three verses of this psalm, we see that a man whose heart is after the Lord gives his very life to the Lord. He lifts his soul up to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord with his life. And if you wanna tune out at some point here this morning, just stay with me for at least this first point. This is the most important point. You need to hear these words you need to, to, to feel these words. You need to sit and ponder these words because I don't know that I can adequately do them justice. I don't know that I can fully explain these words to you. There is a, there is a holy depth to them. To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. I don't need to make my name great. I don't need to politic. I don't need to to jockey for position. I don't need to try to grasp power and control. I don't need because you are the great shepherd and I shall not want. I lack nothing. In fact, I lay down my life before you. What I want doesn't matter. I surrender to you in a loving, trustworthy way. In these opening lines to this lament, there is a lot packed in here, but those first nine words are paramount for all that follows. Nine words. If you have trouble memorizing scripture, let me challenge you, 25 verse one, let that just be where you stay at home. <laughs> to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's easy. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Yes, I need to put my complete trust in you. Yes, you are my God, I have a relationship with you. Yes, you will not put me to shame. You love me too much. Yes, you will protect me from the harm around me. And perhaps you might even exact your own measure of justice on the evildoers, those who are wantingly treacherous. But before all of that, I stand, I sit, I kneel before my heavenly Father and say, I give you my very life. To you, I lift up my soul. Ponder that for a moment ponder what it would be like for you to not just say those words but to 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 mean them to to do it like maybe you need to like physically make a motion like to you O oh Lord I lift up my soul what else or who else do you lift up your soul to we all do it to somebody or something all of us are doing it it's called worship where do you find your meaning in life where do you go for substance purpose or identity. And these opening verses then, the first thing we notice about a man after God's own heart is that he placed his complete trust in the Lord. And correspondingly, we see that the Lord is worthy of the object of his affection. He's a worthy object of our affection. He's trustworthy. When we put our trust in him, when we lift our souls to him, we don't feel shame. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't shame you. He's trustworthy. Instead, he actually bestows honor on you for you are made in his image. This past week, it's a personal example. As frustrations came in, As I was seeking my way, my will, as I hit sheer exhaustion at the expense of all that was going on in life, but still had to keep going, I found myself saying over and over to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And it was freeing. God met me there. Another translation says, I give my life to you. That's what's implied here. Father in heaven, I give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Have your way with me. Your will be done, not my will. To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. Let your will be done in my life. Use me however you want to use me for your glory and your good. This is the first character trait we see of a man after God's own heart here in Psalm 25. The second thing we notice about the manager of God's own heart is that he treasures God's word and is utterly dependent upon it. We see that in verses four and five. He wants to follow God's word. It says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me. These are all poetic ways of saying your word. And notice it's not just a kind of sit and listen and sip some coffee kind of relationship that he's saying here. He says, you are the God of my salvation. I recognize the richness, the depth of all that you offer me. In two short verses, we see David saying, I'm gonna sit right here. I'm gonna gonna sit right here and I'm gonna wait for you, Lord. I want you to make your word known to me. Twice he says, I want you to teach me your word. He says, I want you to lead me in your word. I like the imagery we see in Habakkuk chapter two, verse one. There it says, I'm gonna take my stand on my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. I like that, see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. I love this idea of Habakkuk. He's like, I'm gonna wait. I just laid out my complaint before the Lord and I'm gonna wait. In fact, I'm gonna go up to the highest point I can get to, my watchtower, and I'm just gonna sit up there and I'm gonna wait until the Lord answers me because I want to hear from him. That's the image that we have here. Psalm 42 is a deer pants for streams of water. This rich language of waiting on hearing from the Lord. This beautiful poetic language that gets to the same idea, I want to hear from you, God. I treasure you. I treasure the word of God, and I'm utterly dependent upon following it for my life. Not only do I want to hear from you, but I'm actually going to wait. Boy, we hate that word, don't we? (laughs) Wait? I'm going to wait to hear from you. This word shows up multiple times waiting throughout this psalm. A man who waits on the Lord, doesn't just act. He doesn't just follow human craftiness. He doesn't do what's right in his own eyes, but he waits on the Lord. He waits for the Lord, however long it might take. Waiting is hard. It takes patience, perseverance. But to treasure the word of God and to be utterly dependent on him means we recognize that he is worth the wait. And just as we patiently wait on the Lord, the Lord is patient with us and how he leads us. Sometimes we hear him right away. Sometimes it takes a lot for us to finally hear him. And sometimes as David is penning this lament here in Psalm 25, it's through suffering or pain that our father gets our attention. Your ways, your paths, your truths, you are the God of my salvation. A man after God's own heart treasures the word of God and is utterly dependent on it. Third, the third character trait is in verses six through seven, where we notice a man after God's own heart has a close relationship with the Lord. There's an intimacy in their relationship. He remembers his covenant with the Lord. The language used in these verses all points to that. David refers to God by his covenantal name, the Lord, Yahweh. In our English Bibles, it's that capital L-O-R-D that we see often in scripture. That's that's Yahweh, that's his covenantal name. Back in Exodus 3, when when God first appears to Moses and is about to rescue his people, we read this exchange between Moses and God and learn his covenantal name. Excuse me. Chapter 3, verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. This is the same word, the same name that David is using in this Psalm. Anyone who had read this Psalm, this lament, would have immediately recognized that that this is God's covenantal name. They they would have immediately recognized that, that. The people whom he redeemed, this is, this is the, the people who he rescued, whom he entered into a committed relationship with. This is, this is the covenant that God has made with these people. They would have heard that name and that would have all just clicked for them. But not only does David refer to God's loving name, in these verses, he twice mentions God's unique, almost indescribable quality of hesed. Some of you may have heard this word. We've talked about it before. The best English words we have for hesed are steadfast love, tenderness, faithfulness. You see, our English cannot fully capture this word, but but we get close. We can trust in our translations. It's, It's another word used to recognize God's holiness and yet nearness. And that is profound when you think about it. God is utterly holy and he's utterly near. David also calls upon God's mercy. He points to God's goodness Throughout the rest of the psalm, David will continue to point back to this relationship. Again, using words like hesed, he uses that word multiple times, faithfulness. He'll point to God's covenant directly. He'll mention his testimonies. This is all language that the original readers would have recognized as language completely wrapped up in the covenantal relationship they had with God. But it gets even better. In verse 14, we come to this phrase, the friendship of the Lord. Oh, what amazing, comforting words. The friendship of the Lord. Scripture tells us the Lord is a friend. And this isn't just a a Facebook friend or an Instagram friend. God's not going to ghost you. It's not the kind of friend he is. This word here reaches a deeper level of relationship. Many of you probably have a footnote in your Bible, like down at the bottom there, it probably suggests an alternative translation of like secret counsel. It carries the the meaning of confidential discussion or or circle of confidants or simply intimacy. It's as if David is saying, I have such a close relationship with the Lord that he confides in me. But this isn't just a secret for David. This level of relationship isn't only between David and God. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon says here in, in his Treasury of David. It's like a three-volume set on the, on the a commentary on, on the Psalms and, and about this phrase, about this verse. He says, this is a great secret. Carnal minds cannot guess what is intended by it. And even believers cannot explain it in words for it must be felt to be known. I love that. This word needs to be felt to be known. He who does not know the meaning of this verse will never learn it from a commentary. Let him look to the cross, for the secret lies there. A man after God's heart is one in whom the Lord confides in. He receives the secret counsel of the Lord that's open to all who have a relationship with him, and he welcomes them into this intimate relationship through the cross. So what's the point of all of this? We see that a man after God's own heart has a close, intimate relationship with the Lord. And while we see this closeness that a man after God's own heart has, We also see God's character on display here too, right? Steadfast love, mercy, good, full of grace, quick to remember the one with whom he's in relationship with. David says, remember, Lord, remember this, don't remember that, or he uses this word. It's not that the Lord's gonna forget. The Lord will never forget David, but he's calling upon it more of in a positive way, like recall to mind, Lord, this is the God we are invited into relationship with. When Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he tells us the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God is all around us. The proximity of God is palpable. And then in Matthew 11, he he invites us into this intimate relationship, intimate friendship with him saying, come to me. There's this closeness. It's the great invitation into relationship with him. Come to me. A man after God's own heart has indeed come into and now recognizes his close relationship with the holy other God. Fourth, a man after God's own heart is humble. We see that in verses eight through 10. In fact, he actually repeats this word so that we pay attention to it. In verse nine, it says, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Only the truly humble are able to receive correction from God and from others. You see, being humble puts you in a posture to receive. It's, it's a lowering of self. It's a lowering of ego. It's thinking less of yourself and more of others. And when you daily lift up your soul to the Lord, it's just a natural outcome. You can't help but to be humble. Humbleness is in fact something you can fake. You can, you can fake being humble for a while, but only for a while. The tests and trials of life will reveal if you are truly humble. In your conversations, in your, in your meetings, in your coffee appointments, and your hanging out with friends, if, if you're always the one with the best answer, if you're always the one who has to have the last word, if you're the one who's always right, then perhaps you have not yet grasped what it means to be humble. In professional ice hockey, ice hockey is a sport. They play it on ice. They use these things called sticks, There's a little puck. It's my favorite sport. I know very few of you, Mark is here. He knows what hockey is. You can ask him. Come see me afterwards. I'll explain to you a little bit more about what this thing of ice hockey is called. It's a professional sport, though, I promise. There is, or at least there used to be, an unwritten rule in ice hockey, in NHL hockey, that you never elevated yourself. So after a game, it was, it, was, it was kind of comical after a while. like Commentators would pick up on it, actually. After a game, like the media would surround the star player. Like, that was amazing what you just did. Holy cow, tell me more about it. What did you do? You scored all these goals. You did this phenomenal thing. And the player would never say, I did this or I did that. But instead, he would say, the team did this. Or the team did that, and you know, the, and the media person would get, well, well, yeah, I understand, but you, tell me about you, and he'd be like, oh, but the team, the team. So it kind of became this like back and forth, this 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 display of humbleness. It's a great sport. There's so much you can learn about life by watching it. But that type of humbleness, that's prescriptive, right? That's a code. These guys know you don't break the code. It's a rule that the players know how to follow. But godly humbleness comes from a realization of who I am and and who God is. This covenantal God who has offered us mercy, grace, steadfast love, and who's forgiven our sins in comparison to this sinner. In need of a savior. It's a humbleness only the Holy Spirit can truly give us. Notice the juxtaposition in these verses. The Lord, he instructs, he teaches, he leads, he has steadfast love, he's faithful. You see, the Lord is big, right? He's just like, oh my gosh, amazingly huge. And we are to be small. And in fact, we are small. We just sometimes forget that. The Lord is upright, it says, whereas man is humble. Humble yourself, before the mighty hand of God, Peter says. There's only one way to come before the Lord and that's with humbleness. A man after God's own heart is humble. Fifth, we see that a man after God's own heart hates sin and repents when he does sin. And we see this in verses 11 through 15, and then kind of throughout the psalm, it's it's sprinkled throughout there as well. An important characteristic of a man after God's own heart is the ability to recognize sin, to repent for your sins, and to ultimately to grow to hate sin and not to tolerate sin in your life. One of the main themes that kind of runs through the psalm is David recognizing his sin and asking for forgiveness. Here, here in these four verses, he, he speaks to you. Verse 11, pardon my guilt. Verse 12, the man who fears the Lord. Verse 14, fear him. And then elsewhere, verse six, remember your mercy. Verse seven, remember not the sins of my youth. Verse eight, he instructs sinners in the way. Are, are you hearing this? Verse 18, consider all my afflictions and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Perhaps we don't talk about sin enough. And, and I don't mean here just on Sunday mornings from the stage or maybe when we're gathered. I mean in our lived in day in and day out lives. Perhaps we just don't, we just don't talk about sin. You see, sin is an affront to God. It's, it's abhorrent to God. God hates sin. And to paraphrase Pastor Kim, Tim Keller, sin breaks your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and it impacts the world around you. Yes, we have a merciful God abounding in steadfast love who offers grace, who will forgive sin, who, who does not remember your sins of your youth as far as the east is from the west. Yes, all that is true, but God hates sin. And we should know that this is referring to not just the big obvious sins. Those are easy, right? The headlines are full of them. Just pick up any news, newspaper, you'll just see it but the little ones as well. The ones at times when, when we count as permissible that like we're, we're like okay with in a way. Like, what's the big deal if I cheat on my homework or, or on the test that I have? It, it's only school. It's fun. It's a joke. Who cares? Yeah, I, I wanna meet with you, but only that I can use you for my agenda. I do want to be generous, but only after I hit my financial goals that I have. A man after God's own heart is able to recognize his sin and grows to hate his sin. And despite all of that, he's aware that he will in fact still sin. We're prone to sin. Yet when he does, he repents. And when you repent, notice the text says, it's not for your own glory, rather it's for the Lord's glory that you repent and ask for forgiveness. For your name's sake, pardon my guilt, for it is great When we repent, God is glorified and the kingdom of God advances. It's a small victory over Satan. It's God's children returning back to him. Because when you you do repent before God, he is quick to forgive. And in turn, your relationship grows stronger. Notice it's here that David connects in that friendship language that we just talked about. There's something about repenting and forgiveness that strengthens relationships. Or at the very least, it has the potential to strengthen relationships. If we push into that just a little bit, like if we kind of take this godly idea, like us with God and just push that in and apply that into our own lives, because we don't talk about sin enough, because we don't hate sin maybe the way that we should, because it's not just part of something that in in our regular day that we talk about, we don't actually we don't actually practice this repent-forgive cycle then. So when there is sin in our lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't don't repent, and then there isn't forgiveness. Both repenting and, and actually saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, saying those words properly, and then forgiving each other. These are muscles that we still need to work on. And when we do, though, we see that relationships grow. We see David and God as an example of that. We can only grow in our relationship with God when we come before him and repent for our sins and know that he will and he does forgive you. He has pardoned your sins. He's not remembered your sins. For us in our relationship with God, our utter dependence is based on forgiveness of sins. Six, a man after God's own heart approaches the Lord boldly. We see this in verses 16 through 18. And while it is indeed true, it is a boldness that's coupled with a humble heart. It's not a type of boldness that's demanding in a controlling kind of way, like, like a dictator. That's not what David's saying here. He's not just telling God what to do, but rather a boldness in relationship that recognizes we have a tender father who wants to hear from us. He wants to hear our hearts honestly. Remember, this is David penning a lament. He's writing from some sort of distress, disorientation. He's in pain. He's not trying to dictate God, telling him what to do. He's crying out to him. It's a boldness that a child has in a loving relationship with a parent. I want to make my request known to you, says the child. And the parent says back, I want to hear your requests. It's a boldness coupled with humbleness and an intimate relationship that's on display here. Our heavenly father provides a safe environment for us to come before him with our request. You see, in this intimate relationship in which we're lifting up our souls to the Lord and we're humbled before him, we can appropriately be bold in our prayers to him. And we see that throughout here. This this boldness that that David uses, we see it in the verbs that he uses. A little bit of grammar, sorry. I know it's summer vacation for some of you. We're gonna do a little grammar lesson here. These These are imperatives that we see in this text. It's a verbal form of command. They're not questions. He's not asking. He's declaring it. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. Turn to me be gracious to me, bring me, bring me out, consider my afflictions, guard my soul, deliver me. You see, a man after God's own heart is not afraid to boldly ask for things in his prayers. In fact, he pleads to God to act. This is a man humbly pleading before the Lord, here is my heart, Lord, and it stems from a loving relationship with God. This form of boldly praying to God is often situational. Oftentimes, you'll find yourself praying with this boldness when you're, maybe when you're in a hard situation or when you're in a cry of distress. It it comes from a constant turning to God, though, in all situations. So as a man after God's own heart, are there things that you are afraid to ask the Lord for? He wants to hear from you. He's patiently waiting for you. Are there things in your prayer life that you're not pleading to God for? And finally, seventh, a man after God's own heart is a man of integrity. In verse 21, it says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Now, commentators differ on whether this, this integrity and uprightness is, is referring to David or is it referring to the Lord's. And, and what I'd say is perhaps both are in view here. You see, in Psalm 78 now, we're gonna go to, go to a different Psalm. Psalm 78 is authored by Asaph, and it's, it's a long 72 verses, and, he, and at the end there, he's referring to David, and he says, with upright heart, he, that's David, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, what we don't see is that that word, that upright heart, that's the same word that's being used here in Psalm 25. It's a word of integrity. It is with integrity that David shepherded his people, is what Asaph is saying. And in fact, David himself says in Psalm 7, 7, verse 8, he says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Wow, that's bold. We see then that integrity is an important character trait of David's life. But this word has like a broader meaning than how we often think of it. So those in faith, in the faith community and those outside the faith community, we often, you know, maybe universally, collectively, we can often spot a man of integrity. Usually what we mean though is a person who's consistent in his values and, and how he lives which is part of the definition here of integrity, what that David is using, and that's part of what's in view. And that is a true meaning of the word, absolutely. But, but you see, this, this Hebrew word for integrity, it, just, it has just a little bit more of a broader meaning than just that. It has a, a deeper meaning. And it adds an important distinction as well. You see, the, this, kind of, this Hebrew word for integrity means whole or complete, sound, fullness. Oftentimes, it's used in association with integrity of heart. It's a life that's marked by being completely satisfied in the Lord. When I lift up my soul to you, O Lord, I am complete. I'm whole. Consistency plays a part in this for sure. It has to. But there's more to it. And and don't confuse integrity with perfection. Sometimes I think we do that as well. You see, all these attributes that we're covering here, they, they overlap. A person who's described with integrity also is the one who's sinning, David, right? We see that. However, in his integrity and with humbleness, a man after God's own heart repents. So you see, in this psalm, we see David is not perfect. In fact, nobody who's familiar with David's story would say that David is a perfect man. His story is not the most perfect story, he's a terrible sinner. And yet yet he's still described as a man who led with integrity, an upright heart. You see, we can only be complete and whole because we worship and serve a God of integrity. In him, completeness is found. There's nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing left to wonder about. Only God is both marked by integrity and perfection. Only God is those things. The perfection of beauty. And it's because God's integrity that we're able to be led by integrity in our lives. It's only through that model that he gives us, only by the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that's the final character trait we see. Those are the seven character traits of a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. In this lament, we see the character of David who is a model for us in a way. So which of these character traits do you need to spend time praying through? Where do you need to allow, or maybe even just invite into Holy Spirit, more space to to come in and and work, to start transforming your heart? And no, like all these character traits, they overlap, they're like overlapping circles as we're looking at them. So when you're weak in one, my guess is you're probably weak in another one. And my hunch is, is that all of us, I mean, all of us, without exception, have some level of space to grow in these character traits. That's a look at the life of David, a man after God's own heart, who left us this lament known as Psalm 25. But there's one more verse that we've yet to talk about, and it's that final verse. And it's a, another profound verse. You see, David wraps up this acrostic poem, and then there's this last verse, and it's a king crying out to his, for his people to the Lord, and he says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And God answers that prayer. He answered it then for David in some way, some, some fashion. He answered David. He heard David. He, re- he redeemed his people out of their trouble at that time. And more importantly, he answered it several years later in another more profound way. This trustworthy, patient Hesed, father, who's upright, quick to forgive, tender, and, and marked with integrity, made a way for all to be called a man or a woman after God's own heart. In fact, he invites us into an even closer relationship. We're invited in as a child of God. You see, there was another king in the line of David who came not, and not only cried out to redeem his people, but then he himself made that redemption happen. And that's through the work of King Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus came to this earth in bodily form. And these seven character traits that we see of David, we, we see them in full display in Jesus he had similar character traits. He hated sin. In fact, he lived a perfectly sinful, sinless life. He perfectly modeled humbleness, integrity. He modeled being in close relationship with the Heavenly Father. He, he loved His word and He approached the Father boldly in His prayers. Just think about this, the, the, the life of Jesus that we read in Scripture. He does all humbleness. He's washing the disciples' feet. Boldly, he's in the garden crying "On Not my will, but your will be done. And then he did the ultimate act. Not only did he lift his soul up to God, he actually gave his life to the Father on our behalf. He took on the punishment that we deserved. He made the redemption payment we could never fully make. He satisfied. God's very wrath. God hates sin. He satisfied God's wrath and made a way for us to lift up our souls to the Father and enter into a new covenant, a new covenantal language, a new covenantal relationship with him. We have new language that we talk about now because of Jesus. And this relationship is open to all whom he calls, and it's through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you are not walking with the Lord, perhaps today, perhaps right now, in the quietness of your heart, your chair, wherever you might be, perhaps right now is a time that you will say to you, to you, oh Lord, I lift up my soul. Maybe you'll say that for the first time. Listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you. And now we remember this amazing gift, this amazing gift of grace through the sacred act of communion. Servers, if you will, come forward. We're gonna transition to our communion time now as a church family You see, communion is a reminder of the broken body and blood that's shed so that you can have this relationship restored by God. And it's open to all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior to participate. You don't have to be a member or regularly attend this church. You just need to have a relationship with Jesus. If you are not yet one who lifts up his soul to the Lord, who has entered into this faith-filled relationship with Jesus, then please just let the elements pass by. Or perhaps today, you might not be in a posture to participate in communion with us. Similarly, let the elements pass by. My prayer in either situation is that you will someday join with us at this communion table. Now we'll have those servers come forward. We'll pass the elements as we ready our hearts.